If you've read the Gospel of John and the other Gospels, you'll know that John's Gospel is quite different to what we call the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. Synoptic means see together. So the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, have many similarities in that they report the same events and actions of Jesus, sometimes word for word. There are obviously differences between them. John, on the other hand, records events and teachings that aren't in the other three, as well as leaving out some things that the other three mention. For example, you may have noticed that Jesus' temptation by the devil in the wilderness isn't mentioned in John. The other Gospels tell us it happened immediately after his baptism and then his public ministry began after those 40 days in the wilderness. Well, John skips it and the first of Jesus' actions he reports is when he starts gathering his first disciples. See how in 1.32, John doesn't actually record Jesus' baptism even. He records John the Baptist's testimony of what happened at Jesus' baptism, his anointing with the Holy Spirit. So John is, because he wants to emphasise certain things, is recording things slightly differently. Now some sceptics claim that these are contradictions between the Gospels which discredits them as records of Jesus but it's simply that each Gospel writer chose under the guidance of the Spirit to record some things and not others because of the particular emphasis they were making about Jesus. Let's remind ourselves again of what John said about his purpose for writing what he did. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then right at the end of his Gospel, now there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John's clearly telling us he's left some things out. He's not telling us everything there is to know about Jesus' 33 years of life and ministry, but he's telling us and giving us good cause to believe. Something else that John doesn't record in his Gospel is casting out demons. There's not one exorcism mentioned in John. The other three Gospels are full of encounters with evil spirits and that's presented as a key part of Jesus' ministry there. But in John, Jesus' miracles, they're all about manipulating the physical creation, healing the sick, changing water to wine, stilling the storm, feeding the crowds. In John, we don't actually see any direct contact between Jesus and the devil or evil spirits. Instead, Jesus mentions the devil as he approaches the cross when he calls the devil the ruler of this world and then declares that he is judged and cast out 
by the victory that Jesus will accomplish in his death. So what John's emphasising isn't so much the ongoing conflict that Jesus had with the, uh, the spiritual powers of darkness through his ministry, but on the overall triumph that he has over the devil through the cross. In terms of ongoing conflict and opposition, Jesus, uh, sorry, John emphasises the conflict that Jesus had with the human powers and authorities. Jesus made it clear in the, the one other place in John's Gospel where he mentions the devil that these people who claim to be God's children were actually in league with the devil when he said, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. Shocking, isn't it? Children of the devil. So it's, it's still a spiritual conflict, it's just that it's manifested through human agents. And as I mentioned last week, it's highlighting the divide between those who believe and those who don't. And today's passage brings that out again, especially if we see today's passage in contrast to last week's passage. Remember what we saw. Jesus begins gathering his disciples and as he does he has conversations with them and they, one after another, confess the truth of who he is. Rabbi, the Christ, the prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, King of Israel. He then tells them that they will see that he is the fulfilment of all of the promises of God using Jacob's dream. Heaven opened upon him, the Son of Man, and we could call that, in a sense, the real sign, in the sense that it's not something that could just be passed off as a trick or misinterpreted to say, oh, Jesus is just a miracle worker or a magician, but nothing more. It's expressing the reality to which the physical sign he does points. If heaven is opened and God comes down, there's no debate about what that means. Then he takes them to Galilee and he performs the physical sign of water turned to wine. And through all of this he manifests his glory and his disciples believe in him. Their faith is confirmed. What they confessed about him becomes a reality in their hearts. These were simple, uneducated fishermen, yet they immediately believed upon meeting Jesus, not because they were clever, but because his glory was revealed to them. And so the sign of water to wine was a sign for them as those who were or were to become believers in him. Well, today's passage works out in reverse order to to last week's. It begins with a physical sign, the cleansing of the temple. Now, the disciples are watching this and because of their belief in him, because he's already taught them how to look at the physical sign and 
look behind it, they were able to make a connection with an Old Testament prophecy, which we see in verse 17. But the response of the Jews, which is a shortened term meaning Jewish leaders, mainly when you see Jews in John's Gospel, he's referring to the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests and so on. Their response is one of unbelief. They haven't understood the physical sign as a sign. And so they demand that Jesus give them a sign to prove his authority to do such a thing. He's given them a sign and they say, give us a sign. Jesus' response to them that don't get it because of their unbelief is to say, well, actually, here's the, here's the reality. Here's the real sign behind the physical sign, a destroyed and raised up temple. But they still don't get it in their unbelief. They think he's just talking about the building. And then finally, Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes, he's a Pharisee, he's a representative of these unbelieving Jewish leaders and even though Jesus speaks plain truth to him, Nicodemus doesn't get what he's saying. So there's, see this stark contrast between these simple fishermen from Galilee who believe, humanly speaking, the most unlikely ones to know about the mysteries of the kingdom, and Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, who would have known the scriptures inside out, who represents those who should be the most likely to recognise him, but he can't see the kingdom. Nicodemus stands as a warning to any of us who think that we're in the kingdom just because of our pedigree or because of our knowledge or our status. If we think there's no need for us to die and be born again or to have the Spirit open our blind eyes to see Jesus for who he truly is. See, Nicodemus and Jesus' disciples, these fishermen, they were actually in the same boat, pardon the pun, before encountering Jesus. None of them were able to see the kingdom of God under their own steam or by their own abilities. They all needed the Holy Spirit to blow on them and cause them to be born again. And this encounter with Nicodemus is the beginning of a remarkable thread of grace that runs through John's Gospel. As I said, he's a representative of the unbelieving Pharisees who in this visit doesn't get it. But later in John, as the Pharisees are scheming to have Jesus killed, we see Nicodemus standing up for Jesus. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So he's willing to stand up for Jesus in the face of opposition. Then 
after the crucifixion, he does for Jesus what would normally be expected of a family member. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, John never says Nicodemus believed in Jesus, but I think he's implying it by recording what Nicodemus did. See, Jesus is exploding all of our assumptions. Firstly, he shows us we shouldn't write off these Galilean fishermen because if Jesus chooses to reveal his glory to even the simplest of people, they'll be able to see and believe. But neither should we be too quick to write off the educated, pious, hypocritically religious people like the Pharisees, because even their hard hearts aren't beyond the reach of God's grace. We should never underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of anyone, regardless of whether our earthly perspective considers them more likely to believe. Can God save Vladimir Putin? Can he save Benjamin Netanyahu? Can he save all of those people out there? We look and we see people doing these uh, evil things and, and we assume, well, they're so bad. I'm not saying these two men are necessarily the para- paragon of evil, but we look at these people and say, these people are so bad, they're beyond God's grace. They, they can never change. Well, they can't in themselves, uh, but the Spirit can. It's not ability, it's not inability that does it, it's the Word and the Spirit that enables someone to believe. And that's one of the beauties of the church, the body of Christ. Colossians 3.11 says that the church, in the church there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, the, the uneducated barbarians, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Galatians adds to that list male and female. All of the boundaries that we try to set up between those that we think are qualified and those who aren't, they're all torn down in Christ because qualification by any human trait is irrelevant when entering the kingdom of God. It's all based on free, unmerited grace given on the basis of Jesus' work on the cross. I'm not going to look any further this morning into this conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, That's what we'll be doing on Friday uh, in our summer break Bible study. So let's take a look then at the sign, the physical sign and what it points to. I said that the sign of water to wine was given for those who believe and it resulted in the disciples' faith. This sign is different because it speaks of judgment and it results in confirming the Jews' unbelief. 
Now the Passover was one of three festivals for which the law required coming to Jerusalem, at least by the males of the household. And they were also required when they came to Jerusalem to to give their monetary contribution to the temple. Because at the time of Jesus, these Jews came from all corners of the known world. They came with all their different currencies, so they'd have to change their money because there was only one authorised currency, the shekel, that could be used for that temple offering. So that explains the money changes. And because most people couldn't travel with their Passover lamb, they'd have to purchase a lamb when they arrived. So that explains the sellers of sheep. But what about those selling ox, oxen and pigeons? Well, probably they were there because people would take the opportunity while they were in Jerusalem for Passover to also make the other sacrifices required by the law. Now, the problem is that while money changing and selling sacrificial animals wasn't wrong, it was a service to these travellers who'd come from uh, all over the place, the temple was the wrong place for this business to be carried out. The outer courts of the temple were supposed to be the place that people would come to pray, including people from all nations who were seeking the God of Israel. It wasn't to be a place of trade. So by making it a marketplace, pushing out the prayer, these people were actually defiling the temple. Now there are two short Old Testament passages foretelling what Jesus does here. The first is in Zechariah. He's describing a vision of what it will be like in the new creation when judgment is finished and the worship of God will infuse every activity from horse riding to cooking dinner. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. This vision comes after many chapters in Zechariah of judgment. A restoration of true worship will only come after Israel is gone through the refining fire of God's disciplining wrath. Three years later, not from Zechariah, from where we're reading, Jesus will be back in Jerusalem this time to go to the cross. And guess what? He'll find the traders back in the temple again, indicating that this warning at the start of his ministry went unheeded and he has to drive them out once again. The other Old Testament prophecy is in the book of Malachi. We've already looked at Malachi in reference to John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger 
and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Now see the reference there to John the Baptist, the messenger preparing the way for the Lord to come to the temple to purify it. But notice also this purifying will also be through judgment. It will be a day that not many will be able to endure. But it's judgment that is designed to restore the priesthood. He goes on, I will sit, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old and as in former years. So this sign, in light of those Old Testament passages, is about purified worship, a purified, rededicated temple with a purified priesthood. But his disciples, they're on the ball. They've only been with him a few days and they're already getting it. They recall a third scripture which comes from Psalm 69. Let's read a bigger part of that psalm so we can see this verse in context. Psalm 69. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonour through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonour has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. So it's important to see what David is saying there in verse 9. The first and second phrases are not actually two different ideas. They're Hebrew poetry. So they're the same idea expressed in two different ways. Hebrew poetry uses parallelism. It rhymes, not in its sound, but in the sense of two lines having the same meaning. So the second phrase, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me, uh, help us understand the first phrase. David is facing the reproach of others because they actually reproach the Lord. He's suffering as a result of his allegiance to the Lord. He's consumed because of his zeal for the Lord's house. So the point being made by the disciples recalling that passage and by John who records it isn't, as, as I assumed for many years, that Jesus has been emotionally consumed with his passion for the temple. 
He's not flying off the handle. He's not suddenly overtaken with passion or anger. This was a deliberate planned act. He made a whip of cords first, verse 15. That would have taken some time as he sat down and wove those cords together. So the point, as is the point of Psalm 69, is that this action of Jesus is what sets in motion the Jewish leader's opposition to him, which will ultimately lead to him being consumed in the sense of being assaulted and killed by his enemies. Jesus was zealous for his father's house. He'd come to do his father's will and he was prepared and committed and obedient to that will even when it led to death on a cross. And his zeal for his father's house was shown in what he did, clearing the temple of traitors, showing himself to be the Lord who has come to his temple to purify worship. But this zeal triggers the hostility of the Jewish leaders. Their unbelief has placed them under judgment. And so even though they claimed to have great regard for the temple, they were dishonouring it by allowing, allowing the traders to replace prayer with commerce. They claimed to love God, but they actually loved money. And so Jesus' zeal ultimately led him to be consumed, crucified at the hands of these pious men. That helps us understand then the conversation that follows. Give us a sign, they say, to prove that you have authority to challenge this system, to back up your claim to be, to be the one who can determine what takes place in the temple. They've missed the physical sign. Despite the fact they knew the scriptures inside out, they should have recalled those prophecies. So, Jesus points them to the real sign. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now there are multiple layers in what Jesus says here. The first layer is at the level at which the Jews understood it. Destroy this building in which we're standing and I have the power to rebuild it in only three days. How did they understand that phrase? Well, the Jewish people's understanding of their own history was profoundly shaped by the idea of a destroyed and rebuilt temple. Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem. It took him seven years, even with all the resources he had with his great wealth. After standing for nearly 400 years, it was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews spent 70 years in exile in Babylon before being told by King Cyrus to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. It took them 22 years after stalling and becoming complacent but they completed it in 515 BC. Now they knew it was their sin and their idolatry 
that had brought about the temple's destruction and it was through their humbling and their repentance that they'd been allowed to return and rebuild. That second temple stood for centuries and then in around 16 BC, King Herod, the same Herod who had tried to murder the infant Jesus, he began a massive, extensive work to renovate and to expand this temple. And such a big project took decades. As we see here, it's been 46 years so far, as we hear in 30 AD. It wasn't actually fully completed until the year 63, only seven years before the Roman emperor destroyed it again. There's a pattern here, isn't there? Kings building and destroying temples. The rebuilding of that temple in 515 BC by the returned exiles was seen as a great miracle. It was a sign that the Lord was truly back among his people again. And the Jews of Jesus' day felt the same way about Herod's temple, this magnificent structure being built. To see what Jesus' words mean, just on this level, the superficial level of the building, he's saying, I'm greater than Herod. He's taken 46 years. I'm greater than King Cyrus. Under him it took 22 years. I'm greater than Solomon. He took seven years. And you know what? I'm even greater than Moses. Moses took nine months to build the tabernacle. That was the model for them all. That's, that's what the Jews saw him saying to them. And in that sense, it was true, it was right. But that's only the surface layer. That's the only layer the Jews could see because of their unbelief. The next layer is that about Jesus' death and resurrection. What he was really saying was, destroy me, kill me and I will rise on the third day. Here's Jesus' first prediction of his death and resurrection. The real sign that Jesus does have the authority to come and cleanse the temple. It's the only way that anyone, Galilean fisherman or Pharisee, will ultimately be able to see Jesus for who he is through the lens of the cross and the resurrection. Take those events out of the Gospels and you've only got meaningless bedtime stories. Take those events out of the Gospel and we have nothing of worth to tell anyone. As we've seen, the physical sign said that the Lord has come with purifying judgment to remove the abominations from the temple and to restore the priesthood. Well, that's what happened at the cross. The abomination of our sin was born by him and driven away as far as the east is from the west. And in his resurrection, he gave rise to a new kingdom of priests, the church. So the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, they won't be convinced of anything until they come to the foot of the cross. And the same is true for us. 
and see that while they had faith in him, his disciples, they actually needed that sign of his death and resurrection for them to fully comprehend it. Now the third level, the deeper level of this sign is that the true temple, the place where you must come to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, uh, isn't the building, it's Jesus himself. He was speaking about the temple of his body. God, the Word made flesh, dwelling among us. His Death and resurrection is what that cycle in history of the temple building, being destroyed and being rebuilt, that's what it pointed to. Jesus is the house of God and he's the house that will never be destroyed. He needs no renovations, no extensions because he is sufficient, he is enough, he is the place of sanctuary the place of communion, of peace and righteousness, the place of rest. So come to him and you will see and know the Father. Come to him and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the wonderful thing for us. We don't need to wait or to look for some other sign to know that this is true and for us to believe. The disciples had to wait three years until the cross and the empty tomb for the penny to drop as the Spirit gave it to them. But we don't need that because we've, we've got it here laid out all clearly in the Scriptures, in John's Gospel. The sign of the destroyed and raised temple, the cross and resurrection, it's already happened and it stands before us as the ultimate sign showing crystal clear to us the love and grace of the Father in Jesus. So, just like the disciples believe the scripture, believe his words, believe in him, 